Welcome to Filmcasters. I'm one of your hosts, Antonio Coffey. I'm Nick McKay. And I'm Topher, I guess. Great intro. I love the energy. Yes. Topher will be joining us from now on. He's yes. the cheese to our ham and cheese sandwich. Does that I make thought it was a pickle to that ham? sandwich. Uh, there could be. We could all be the pickle. Can I be I'll mayonnaise? Be yes. Yes. So we're just... Uh, I'll be the radish. Are we, now? are we a melt? I think we're a melt. I'm down for okay. a melt. Perfect. I love it. Dude, tuna melt sounds good right now. It really does. And on a completely unrelated topic, today we'll be talking about The Producers. 2005. The best. Yeah. I love that video game. Uh, I've heard good rumors about the video game. Which one? I'm making a dumb joke. Let's go. Move on. (laughs) Move past it. (laughs) Man, I miss all the good jokes. You do. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You do. Um, Yeah. So, producers by one of my favorite directors, Mel Brooks. If you're a big fan of comedy, you probably know some of his stuff, I hope. Of course. And it stars uh, Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick, one of my favorites. Yes. And Is he Uma still Thurman. doing movies? Who? Matthew Broderick. I don't know. I feel like I haven't seen him in a movie in forever. No, I think he mostly does TV now. Oh, I should look it up. You should. Uh, Topher, do you want to give us a little bit on the cast and stuff that you know? Uh, well, for Matthew Broderick, this was not a good period for him. Uh, Unfortunately, the the 2005 producers was kind of a critical eh, box office bomb, and it sank the career of his. It sank his already floundering career because it released shortly after Godzilla. Oh yeah, I like that one though. I forgot about that Godzilla movie existing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so as a big Godzilla fan, I try to forget about that Godzilla movie existing. Uh, that was the. For those who don't know, the Roland Emmerich Godzilla, Americanized Godzilla, the first Americanized Godzilla, big budget. Disowned um, by Japan. Yes. Roland Emmerich of Independence Day fame. Um, and then you got Nathan Lane, who, fun fact, voice of Timon in the original Lion King. Oh, that's neat. And did the actual singing for him, too. Oh, that's really cool. Wait, Timon's the, the meerkat, right? Yes, yes, yeah. that is. Yeah, yeah. So I actually, uh, I knew it was a critical meh, which is sad and surprising because in 2001, when it was the Broadway play of the producers, it was just full of critical acclaim. Yeah, I, I remember you saying it, it won a lot of stuff. Yeah, it won m- multiple Tonys, I believe, at least one, if not multiple, for its performance. I guess, you know. Mm-hmm. The U.S. in 2001 and 2005 were two two very different countries. This is true, but also I don't think I don't think a lot of the cast was the same. Uh, I thought Broderick was in the 2001 producers. Yeah, it, it, it was it was them. It was them too. They were definitely the same. I don't know about everyone else though. Yeah, that that that's true. Um, do do do. Yeah. Well, and then you got Uma Thurman, who was coming off of her. It wasn't super recent, but her recent uh, return to prominence through Kill Bill. Yeah. Oh. Yep. Uh, so yeah, I did look it up. Twelve Tonys is what they won, nice. and it was basically just a straight adaptation of the musical the play was so it was really surprising that it was a meh yeah i remember reading some of the things were like one of the big reasons was it tried to be too different while at the same time trying to be shot for shot remake so it was this weird like tonal difference and then also they they couldn't they didn't get as daring with their creativity as the original one. So yeah. it was just kind of disappointment in re- respect to the original one. 
Okay, yeah. I I can see that. Honestly, though, like if we're talking original and 2005, I really prefer the 2005 one. Part of that might just be because I'm a complete sucker for musicals. Oh, yeah. That's fair. The original was not a musical. Yeah. The original did have Gene Hackman, though. And that's almost as good as being a musical. Almost. But almost. Not, not quite. Almost. Almost. It, the, the original had some great scenes, like the one where they try to blow up the theater. Oh, that was my favorite part. That, that was probably my favorite part. Fun yeah. fact, that's actually where Tarantino got the main inspiration for uh, the scene in Inglorious Bastards of uh, oh. the of the the theater going on fire and killing Hitler was from the producers. Yeah, that scene of them trying to blow up the blow up the theater because of the the Hitler film that they were making. I see the connection. I that, actually love that. That's amazing. So another thing that because I was looking into because uh, I was curious how much flack uh, Brooks got over making the producers because i mean the war would only ended what roughly 20 years ago when the producers came out so hit like a comedy about the nazis was really not that well touched and there were some pretty predictable reactions uh but mel brooks stood by it because he believed the best way to deal with Nazis was to laugh them out of town. And that's what he was trying to do with springtime for Hitler. It's a a fair idea. Right. Whole article on JSTOR. I applaud them for, I guess they didn't write on JSTOR, but ended up in JSTOR. Um, That looks at German, the evolution of not German culture, the evolution of Jewish culture from the sixties to 2005 based off the producers. Wow. Some interesting insights. Another part of it Sounds was... Sounds like a film studies dissertation. It, I think it might have been. It was interesting. Uh, one part they were saying is the reason it might have been mixedly received in the, in the 60s is that there was supposedly kind of this split between the Jewish community of, you know, your more Orthodox Jews and your more... Uh, I won't want to call them liberal Jews because they weren't really liberal as we think of it, but more young, re-energized. I guess um, because it basically came down to you had a lot of people who they still like they were used to being viewed as outsiders. Like because like Jewish people weren't widely accepted in America as, you know, the general population, just like a lot of minorities weren't. And so at that time was when the, it wasn't so or as awkward as it used to be. Not awkward, but you know what I mean. Um, but where younger ones were used to the idea of the upcoming state of Israel, and there was a big push for all of that. So you had this big divide, and a lot of people were uncertain of where they stood in society. Like, were they accepted by the mainstream? Were they not? And so the producers really kind of pushed that in 67 and 2005 wasn't really pushing that that much. So you obviously had a lot less pushback. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. The article, if any of you want to read it and I suggest it, it was a pretty interesting read. Uh, I only read like 20 pages. It's 29 pages, so I read a good portion of it. It was Mel Brooks' The Producers, Tracing American Jewish Culture Through Comedy by Kirsten Fermaglich. If you're listening and mispronounce your name, I am so sorry, but great study. All right, Nick, you want to tell us about Broadway since today we're going to be talking about the history of Broadway and... Con men and women. So, settle down while I tell you all about the history of Broadway. Um, So people say it started in 1732 when the first theater in New York was built 
on Nassau Street. If you don't know where that is, I don't either. I uh, probably should have Googled it now that I mentioned that. But, you know, uh, we're already going. And then, um, you know, it did okay. It, it did fine. But then in 1750, uh, I guess British uh, theater came over. British actors came and they brought Shakespeare. And that's when people uh, really started to take a liking to it. And then uh, it didn't last long, though. Because in 1775, a little thing called the Revolutionary War happened. And uh, they put Broadway, well, they put theater on hold. Because it was probably not the best time to go see a show. And then it stayed closed till about maybe the 1780s or 90s, depending on who you ask. But uh, it it was gone for a while. It took a little while to come back. But it did. And um, 1800s, uh, you know, it it began to grow. It began to rise. Um, one cool thing that happened was uh, a culture war. Uh, and an event called the Astor Place Riot. Where basically what happened was um, you had Shakespeare plays going. And you had British actors and you had American actors playing the same roles. And uh, so, you know, there began, uh, you know, kind of a, a feud between who did it better, British or Americans, specifically an American actor named Edwin Forrest and the British actor William Charles McCready. And so uh, they were competing the most and it started to get ugly because people from like the other side would go to their shows and like heckle and boo and uh, eventually just broke into riots. And it, the riot of a store place. And, uh, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't find out how it went, but it probably ended okay, you know? It's, uh, so. But don't quote me on that. So, in 1857, uh, they made Elves. The first, uh, it's considered the first musical on what is now Broadway. And then, a few years later, they made The Black Domino, which is considered the first musical comedy. And uh, it's after this, in the late 1800s, that uh, musical comedies really start to become a solid genre. And uh, we get a lot more of them. And uh, Broadway itself is growing because poverty is going down. Um, people, they're making roads, so it's easier for people to get to the theaters. And, uh, you know, they're lighting the way so people can find it. So, you know, it's easier for people to get to, so more people are going. And eventually, in uh, 1906, uh, they start using uh, bright white lights uh, for all their theaters. The first one was a place called the Red Mill. And this is how Broadway earned their nickname of the Great White Way. And uh, fast forward a little bit to 1918. uh, You have Lightning, which was uh, the first show to have a thousand shows. So this is where uh, they become more established. And they last, obviously, a long time. And uh, the funny, one funny one, um, one play called Abby's Irish Rose was the first one to pass uh, lightning. But the funny thing is it was critically panned. It was considered a terrible show, like uh, Springtime for Hitler was supposed to be. And uh, this really threw people, uh, people didn't know like, what to expect. Because, you know, how did such a a bad play end up being so popular, you know? And, uh, you know, let that be a lesson to everyone. You know, you see a bad review, watch it anyway. Because you never know. There could be a couple hidden gems. Like The Room. Exactly like The Room. Yup. Abby's Irish Rose was the uh, early 1900s room. 
That's exactly. See, we're finding comparisons left and right. See, and I love I, I, it. I'm glad we as humans are always drawn to supposed train wrecks. Yep, I think this is proof. Yeah, springtime I mean, for Hitler could be proof. I mean, look at the look at the burgeoning career of one uh, famous comedic actor who I will not name, but people should know who I'm talking about. I probably do, but I'm drawing a blank. I'm terrible at guessing games. Yeah, so am I. This is... Anyways. Anyways. So, uh, in the 1920s, though, uh, theater ran into trouble. Because this was the emergence of cinema. Uh, People were, you know, were now going to cinemas uh, because they were cheaper. uh, They were a lot shorter. And uh, people just liked them. And everyone thought that was the end of Broadway. You know, there's no way they could survive. And uh, they almost didn't. Vaudeville uh, died out. But uh, Broadway managed to stay in there, but just barely. They were were on a limp. Up until about um, 19... The 1920s, uh, they came back a little bit because, you know... Uh, Roaring Twenties, and uh, also they produced Showboat, which was the first uh, musical with a cohesive story. So musicals before then, you know, it was a bunch of different musical numbers, a bunch of different things going on. Showboat was the first one where it was the same story from beginning to end. Oh, that was a new thing? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I know, uh, right? If I remember correctly, early musicals like really took their like f- they took like kind of the free form idea from ballets, where there is kind of a story, but you don't really like you kind of get it through the the music instead of any actual dialogue or acting and stuff. Oh, well, that's neat. Yeah, there you go. And uh, let me see. Oh, so then comes uh the golden age of broadway right where our play movie about a play takes place uh it starts in 1943 with oklahoma which is considered one of the greatest plays of all time and uh this is where broadway really manages to make it back into the mainstream because uh they had people like Frank Sinatra and Bing Crosby singing songs from the play. And uh, everyone everyone fell in love up until the late 1950s when uh, it just reached a huge decline uh, because of another invention, the television. Uh, people started watching, you know, you could see live sports on TV. You could watch anything you want. Um, yeah, and also, because uh, this was when New York starts to get a bad rep for not being a very safe place. So, you know, there weren't a lot of people clamoring to go to New York anymore. <laughs> and uh, they hit, like, a real downturn up until like the late 70s when uh, people are starting to demolish uh, theaters because, you know, no one's using them. And uh, so they start campaigns to save the theater. And uh, it works because it it brings attention because people are like, remember theaters, guys? We We should see plays instead of tearing down theaters. And people said, "Oh yeah, plays. Let's let's go see a couple." And then, uh, and then they also uh, made a lot of famous stuff like um, what did they make? They made Grease. That was during that time. They made Chicago, uh, Les Mis, and uh, Phantom of the Opera, which oh. is the current longest uh, running play ever. And the first one to hit over 10,000 shows. God. Yeah. And then in the 90s, 
made it back into the big mainstream. Some people call it the Silver Age. Uh, you start getting things like Chicago. Uh, you got the Lion King. You got Wicked. Uh, Kinky Boots. Recently, uh, Hamilton. Because uh, it goes Cats. from the 90s. Cats. Not the movie. Although I actually did really like the movie. Really? But, oh my god. <laughs> yeah, honestly, I had fun. I, okay. Anyway. You got all that stuff. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it, it's the biggest Broadway has been since, you know, that, that one golden age in the 40s. Although, uh, I think people agree that uh, 2020 is kind of the cutoff for that, though. Since now, you know, Broadway is on hold indefinitely. Wait, but why would it be on hold? I'm obviously kidding. Yeah, it's, you know, it's because uh, people decide not to. Uh, they decide to watch Tiger King instead. Oh, I see. You know, yeah, you know I pay for a Tiger King musical. <laughs> you I know would, what? I feel like people are talking about that. I would 100% pay for the Tiger King musical. Oh, and let us not forget the most recent thing in hopeful Broadway history. TikTok creating the Ratatouille musical. Oh, oh, you know what? I heard I about, about that. that. That was amazing. See, that just shows that I really a hope big it Broadway true. community that is bored out of their minds right now and and just not okay, not well. I really hope that comes through. If we get a TikTok musical on Ratatouille, I I couldn't be happier. It it's really what we need right now. It's what the world needs. Maybe I disagree. Maybe vehemently. it's the next step for Broadway is crowdsourcing their musicals through TikTok. Oh God, that sounds awful, but glorious. Like if we get it for only like two or three years and then someone realizes it was a bad idea, but those two or three years would be amazing. Well, you know, bad ideals happen to be my specialty. Oh, I know they do, Nick. And, uh, yeah, there you go. There's the whole history of Broadway, all wrapped up in a neat little Showtime bow. Ah, nice. Thank you, Nick. Yeah. So, what I got for us here is, since the producers are about two conmen, we're going to talk about some famous conmen of the past. Starting in New York City. With the man named George Parker. All right. You know the saying, if you believe that, I got a bridge in Brooklyn to sell you? No. Really? No. no. Wow. Okay, so no. it is a saying. It's not commonly used <laughs> anymore, but it's 100% true. It's a saying. Anyways. Do you reason- have a bridge in Brooklyn to sell us? I don't, but this man does. Sweet. George Parker I'm listening in the late 1800s early 1900s uh well he was a con man that sold New York landmarks quote unquote sold New York landmarks uh he targeted immigrants who were just new to the country and he'd tell them about the fortune he is making from his toll booth on the Brooklyn Bridge And he'd be like, look, I'd be willing to sell you the Brooklyn Bridge. And this wasn't some, like, shady guy on... I mean, he was a shady guy on the street trying to sell you a bridge he definitely didn't own. But he put effort into this. He had bought or rented out an office space, made it look like a legitimate business, and forged documents showing that he owned the Brooklyn Bridge. Now, he didn't... Because he was targeting different people. He didn't always sell them the whole bridge. Sometimes he sold them like 10% of the bridge or 20% of the bridge, whatever he thought he could get them to buy. And it was really strange because no one knew this was going on. The police officers at the time just thought there were some crazy people trying to put up their own toll booths on the book, the toll booths on the Brooklyn bridge. It wasn't until this happened for about the third time. And he said, no, I bought it. I could show you the office. And they take the officers to this now empty and deserted office. 
they realized, oh, someone's actually trying to sell the Brooklyn Bridge. So this was kiboshed by putting up signs that said public property all over the bridge because that prevented most people from buying it. George Parker, he's a man who's still going to sell landmarks. Uh, He went on to sell other New York landmarks, the Statue of Liberty a few times, and he even tried selling the tomb of General Grant, President Grant. I'd buy that for a dollar. Yeah, uh, he was selling it for a lot more than a dollar. Because it wasn't infested with rattlesnakes. Yeah. Oh, come on. Don't don't knock our university. But yeah. <laughs> um, now, if someone uses that saying on me, I'll get offended because I know what it means. Yeah. But not only did he try to sell General Grant's tomb, but he passed himself off as Grant's grandson while trying to do it. A few, <laughs> A few other people, you know, tried to sell the bridge as well, but he he was the one most famous for doing it. And if you ask him, he'd sell the Brook, the, the, the Brooklyn bridge twice a week. Uh, police think it was really only more like three times his whole time, but you ask him, he sold it time after time, but him and some of the other people selling landmarks, well, they eventually went to jail for fraud and you know, no. Yeah. Shocking. The person selling a bridge he definitely doesn't own went to jail for fraud. And guess what prison they ended up in? Alcatraz? Oh, God, no. That's across the country. Sing Sing Prison. The one from the producers. From the movie. From the movie. Hey, hey, that's from the movie. Wow. I didn't know I Sing Sing was... musicals happening there. I don't know. I didn't know Sing Sing was a real prison. I definitely thought it was just a either. comical name for the movie. It is pretty funny. Now if I got sentenced to Sing Sing, I don't think I could take it seriously. Like You just burst into song? I would have to burst into Prisoners of Love. Prisoners of Love. I hope everyone Prisoners else would too. Right? Like, they have to watch that movie. Like, that has to be part of orientation for prison. And then it's just like like the best inside joke ever. Yeah. Moving. I don't think they have prison orientation, but I could be wrong. You know, just for Sing Sing. We'll have to find out. Commit a crime, get arrested, and find out. It's the only way. We'll sell the Brooklyn Bridge. Dude, I'll do it. Hey, Nick, I got a, I got a bridge in Brooklyn to sell you. Wow, sign me up. All right. Uh, our next guy actually happened first because I overlooked him on my notes just now. His name was Jeff Soapy Smith. He started out in the late 1800s. Uh, was only running around for about 30 years. Started out in Fort Worth running a soap racket. What this means, because I was confused... He had, like, his whole little gang. Because, you know, honestly, by himself or just with his brother, they probably couldn't got a lot accomplished. But he had a whole gang of people helping him pull off these cons. So what he did was he sold soap for... Oh, shoot. I lost some of my notes, so I don't have it. But I want to say it was about 12 cents. Or no, it was 50 cents, which nowadays, like, when you're converting money, equals out about to, like, $12. So imagine paying $12 for a little soap bar. I mean, I guess you could go to, like, a arts and crafts fair and still do that, but either way. Um, Rose Apothecary. Rose Apothecary. Yeah, dude, go to the town of, the town of Schitt's Creek, Rose Apothecary, and you might just be able to get that $12 soap bar. Or body milk. Or body milk. The reason people were buying these soap bars was because he would wrap them up in money. Like, he'd get the bar, he'd wrap that in money, and then he'd wrap up the soap. So, for 50 cents, you could be buying a soap block worth 20 or even 50 
dollars. That was a I mean that that's a great investment, right? If you win, the thing is you never win. No one that wasn't part of Soapy's group ever got the 50 or 100 dollar bill. You know, maybe they'd get a 5 or a 1 or a 10 here and there, you know, cuz you got to get people interested. But even then it usually just went to his group. And so that way they could just keep pocketing more and more money. Anyways, he kept clashing with people, and he was eventually ran out of Fort Worth. So then he went and moved up to... Oh, no. I lost a lot more of my notes than I thought. I am sorry, y'all, but I want to say it's Denver. Give me a second to double check. But he moved on up there to... The suspense is killing me. I know. Yes, Denver. I need to know. Uh, yeah, he went to Denver. Uh, and but he still kept in touch with people from Fort Worth. His brother, his younger brother, actually ended up getting arrested for trying to set fire to a hotel. So they were all kind of a mess. But he ended up getting run out of Denver too once people were. Wisen up to the fact that he was ripping them off. And, you know, rumors slowly move north from Fort Worth as far as that is. So he had to go somewhere no one would recognize him. Can you make a guess where that would be? Saskatchewan. I don't know where that is. Jersey. That's in Canada. You're close. He actually went to Alaska. Who's close? Yeah. Okay. Canada. New Jersey was very far. As far as you could be without getting off the continent. He went to Alaska and he started doing his thing there. Um, until a committee started trying to get his group ran out of town. Uh, when that committee was meeting one time, because the big bulkhead happened when one of Soapy Smith's uh, members... Uh, robbed the bank, or not robbed the bank, but he robbed someone. I actually didn't find out who. Anyways, he was a robber, and he wouldn't return the money. And they wouldn't hand him in. And they're like, alright, we gotta we gotta move him out. So, Smith got drunk, and showed up, and started yelling at them. Supposedly he was armed, and they shot him. That was the end of Soapy Smith. But he made thousands just selling soap bars. Probably more than that, and especially if you convert, convert it to day's money. This man had to at least make 100000 plus off selling soap, and soap alone. That's, that's, that's skill. Speaking of, I meant to say this at the beginning, where do y'all think the name con men comes from? Convincing artist. Construction sites. Confidence artist. They'd get you confident, and they'd kind of win you with their confidence. Ah. Yeah, they'd make you confident you were getting a good deal, or confident that this was in your favor, when it was 100% not in your favor. Wow. So, the next one we're going to talk about is our only out-of-country one, and he may not even exist. Supposedly, he was Eduardo, uh, the Marquis de Valfierno. He claims, more accurately, this man named Carl Decker claims that Eduardo planned the theft of the Mona Lisa in 1911. He's not the man that stole it. The man who stole it was... Vincenzo Perugia. Um, he was a worker at the Louvre, and he knew that one day a week, the Louvre was closed for cleaning. So before it closed, the day before, he stuck, in a, he stuck himself in a closet and waited there till the next day. He worked there for years, so he knew like the patrol routes. And so why the patrol had passed by... He got out of the closet, took the Mona Lisa out of its frame, folded it up, put it in his coat jacket, and escaped. 
it took about 28 months for them to get it back. And they only got it back because Perugia was like, hey, I'm an Italian. The Mona Lisa was painted by an Italian. It belongs in an Italian museum. So he tried to sell it to a museum in Italy in which they're like, this is the famous piece of art that was just stolen. And he was arrested and put on trial and was sent to prison for theft. But, you know, his heart was kind of in the right place. What is interesting is a man named Carl Decker said he met a man, Eduardo, in South America, who told him he actually convinced Perugia to steal the Mona Lisa and that he had two people help uh, Perugia lift up the heavy frame. And the whole big idea was Eduardo didn't even want the Mona Lisa. He just needed it missing. He knew a guy who could make great forgeries and he could sell these forgeries to multiple people and claim they were the real thing. But he couldn't do that if the Mona Lisa was hanging up in a museum. So he needed the Mona Lisa to go missing for a while. And so he supposedly convinced Perugia. Perugia stole it and he was able to sell his money. The thing is, a lot of Decker's claims about Eduardo don't add up. Like there was no Marquis that was named Eduardo. Uh, But that could have just been Eduardo lying, right? The, The big thing that doesn't add up is... According to Decker, Eduardo claimed the frame for the Mona Lisa was over 200 pounds, and that's why he had to send men to help Perugia. Uh, The Louvre confirmed the frame was about 20 pounds. So there would have been no reason to send other men. Well, I mean, that's what I say when I don't want to move stuff either. You know, I'm like, this thing weighs like hundreds of pounds. That's true. That's true. So, what was cool was in the hunt for the Mona Lisa, they uncovered another little criminal ring. Uh, One that led all the way up to Pablo Picasso. So, Joseph Guerre Perret. He was a con man and an art thief that worked for Gulame Apollinari. I am definitely butchering these French words, so I am so sorry. Anyways, so Apollinari, he was a good friend of Picasso. He loved Picasso's work, and he really, really hyped up Picasso. He was definitely one of his biggest supporters. According to Pierre, Apollinari had been hiring him to still work out of the Louvre, and to that extent, he sent the newspaper a small statue that was supposedly was stolen from the Louvre to prove, hey, yeah, I'm actually an art thief. I could do this. Uh, so they started looking into it. Put some respect on my name. Yeah. Picasso got freaked out because he had recently moved to the country and any mistake could get him kicked out. Um, I think it was determined that he wasn't at fault, but it was proven that Apollinari did sell these statues to Picasso that he had Pierre stole, which supposedly were used uh, for an inspiration for his planning Les Demiocels de Avignon. I'm not good at art, and I'm not good at French. I did try my best there. I am sorry, y'all. So they did find that little smuggling ring in the whole process of trying to track down the Mona Lisa, which was cool. Well, joke's on him, because you can buy fake Mona Lisas at every gift shop now. Haha. But you see, you can't sell them for of full price. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. He'd turn around and sell them on the black market. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Hard to sell them on the black market if the real thing's in a museum. The intrigue just kept going and going. It truly did. So the next person we have is Casey Chadwick, the quote-unquote daughter of Andrew Carnegie. So, first off, she was not the daughter of Andrew Carnegie, 
But she had so many con- people convinced that she was. So she married into high society in the early, early 1900s, like 1902. Uh, she wasn't ever really accepted by the other wives in high society because, you know, she was a gold digger, quote unquote, stuff like that. I mean, before she got married, she was running like fortune telling rackets and scams. So maybe she was a gold digger. I don't know if that's why she married for money. There's probably a good chance. Um, but her biggest play went on trying to pass herself off as Carnegie's illegitimate daughter so that she would get money when he died. Mm. Now, she never tried to convince Carnegie. She just tried to pre- convince everyone else. So to do this... She asked her husband's friend, James Dillon, if he could give him, a, if she could give, if he, he could give her a ride in his carriage. She needed to go visit his father. She gave the driver an address. 2 East 91st Street, please, at 5th Avenue. And she just kept talking with Mr. Dillon as if nothing was going on. Uh, They stopped at Carnegie's house and she just kind of was like, I'll be back quickly and got out. Uh, When she got there, she asked to speak to the staff and they're like, Hey, I'm thinking of hiring a maid who supposedly worked for y'all. And then she made up a name and was like, does this person work here? They were confused. They're like, no, they never worked here anyways. And she was like, are you certain? And she kept going back and forth, like trying to convince them she had a real reason to be there. Uh, and then she left. And she made sure when she got into the carriage, she let out a brand, a brown envelope that she supposedly got while she was in there, but had been carrying her, the carrying it with her the whole time. When Dylan finally, you know, completely and utter confused and finally got his speech back asking who is your father she was like well you can't tell anyone but i'm carnegie's illegitimate daughter she handed over the envelope which contained promissory notes for hundreds of thousands of dollars signed by carnegie himself they were not signed by carnegie himself um and so she told dylan but you can't tell anyone. Do you know what happens as soon as you tell someone they can't say something like this? Spreads like wildfire. It spreads like wildfire. Like on the wings of an angel. Basically. And so it just started spreading and spreading all throughout high society. And then she was eventually caught for forgery. Big surprise when people found out that she was putting down her name fakely as Andrew Carnegie. <laughs> uh, so it it did it did go bad. She did get put into jail for it. Um, but did she ever get to meet her father? Let me find it. I actually don't know. Like I said, I lost a lot of my notes, which I feel awful about because I didn't save. And so now I had what was auto-saved, which wasn't all of it. Um, In 1905, she was found guilty of conspiracy to defraud a national bank uh, and sentenced to 10 years in jail. Ah, you want to know if she ever met Carnegie, right? Yeah. She did. He attended the trial. (laughs) Nice. Yeah, and uh, he said, to quote, If anybody had seen this paper and then really believed that I had drawn it up and signed it, I could hardly have been flattered, pointing out errors in spelling and punctuation. Why haven't signed a note in the last 30 years? (laughs) You know, that's such a dad thing to say, too. (laughs) I know. She, She and her father weren't on good terms, apparently. Doesn't sound like it. Uh, yeah, supposedly she was able to get... Um, 
So she had been taking out loans is what really got her in trouble under Carnegie's name. And it's not his name exactly, but under the idea that she had the money since she was Carnegie's illegitimate daughter. And so she was taking all these loans that she definitely couldn't afford. Uh, but people believe that she got uh, around $633,000 out of it, which, you know, today is about $16 million. Damn. And most Ooh. people say her time in jail was extremely comfortable as, you know, she had the current day equivalent of $16 million and just got whatever she wanted in jail. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it does. So crime does pay. Yes. That's the lesson, kid. Crime yep. pays. That's what I got out of this. Yes. If if you really want to listen to Nick, there's your lesson. <laughs> Kidding, Nick. I love you. I love you. So we have one last con. A current day con, as it happens. It is a modern day producers. Now, no... There was no actual play made, but there was a fake play. So this man convinced a bunch of his friends, about 10 investors, to give him money. He was going to put on a Broadway play at the Booth Theater with actress Lupita Nyong'o. And they were... Oh, they that's were, a big name. Yeah, it was a big name. Like, he dropped the Booth Theater and Lupita Nyong'o. Like, this didn't seem like a guy just you know talking out of nothing pulling things was this out before of or after dinner. her oscar uh this is uh 2015 2016 so I like right at, so like right after her oscar okay yeah yeah all right it was reported late 2016 is the article i found talking about it so yeah probably right after her oscar uh he was able to get about $200,000 uh and he was going to put on the Kathleen Beadle Project, a one-woman show about opera singer Kathleen Beadle. Someone decided, hey, let me like look into the play that I invested in. And they couldn't find anything on it. Like They had nothing. He was even trying to tell them that he struck a deal with Netflix to get it broadcasted on Netflix, recorded and put up on Netflix. Yeah, it it did not it didn't go so well when the, his investors looked into it and found there was nothing and then they wanted their money back and just like what happens every time someone asks a fraud uh fraud person con artist yeah there we go con That's artist for their money back uh I'm sorry tired uh con artist for the money back he's like yeah, and just never got back to them. Uh, he was sentenced to prison. Not shocking. Uh, only six months in jail, surprisingly. Uh, it doesn't say what prison he went to. But oh, his, I hope it's Sing Sing. It might be. Is Sing Sing still open? I have no idea. I wasn't even sure if it was real. And neither was I. Sing Sing... Um, yeah, I think it's still open. Nice. Yeah, it's a maximum. It's, yeah. You know, since it was supposedly happening with Broadway and stuff, there's a there's a chance that it was in New York, and he might have actually ended up in Sing Sing. Oh, boy, oh, boy. Wow, wouldn't that bring us full circle? It sure <laughs> would. A man after Max Bialystok's heart. Yeah. And so those are my famous fraudsters. Oh, y'all know what I realized we didn't do and we should record now and we could cut it into the early episode. What? We didn't explain the producers. We didn't. No. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of important. Yeah. We should just give like a quick summary. Yeah. Uh. Topher, do you want to do it? Yeah. Uh, Sure. All right, Topher, tell us what the movie's about for anyone who hasn't seen it. So the producers is like 
Argo, except not for a good cause. Ooh, I like that. That's, oh, that's pretty a great good. Way. Yeah. So you got these two con artists, right? And they say, "Hey, let's make some money. How? Let's make a movie." But we don't. We don't know how to make a movie. We're not actually making a movie. We're faking it. The end. Yes. But also. But also, yeah. <laughs> but also, no. But also, no. Yeah, because the the movie slash musical they end up. Well, because in the new in the remake, it's like a play that they want to turn to a movie. In the original, it's just a play. I think even in the old one, it was even in the new one, it was just a play. Yeah, it was. Yeah, because it was. Oh. Yeah, it was still set in the sixties, fifties. I thought I remember a line or two where they wanted to make it into a movie. No, they wanted you're, to. You're thinking because it got actually turned into a movie. Yeah, maybe. Because no. they wanted. Uh, so the big plan was they raise money from investors to put on this play, but they make a play so bad it closes opening night, and then they keep all the extra money they raise from investors because they could just tell the investors, "Sorry, it was a failure." We have no money to give you back. And it, since it was a failed play, the IRS wouldn't expect their books to, you know, be any different than the fake books they cooked up. And that play was a Hitler love story. It was. It was written by a Nazi. Mm-hmm. Who's played by Which, Will Ferrell. <laughs> that's true. But also another fun fact... So in the remake, a lot of the voices for the pup for the puppets were actually like a super established Muppet and like like Muppet voice actors. Puppets? Did I miss the puppets? I'm drawing a blank on the puppets too, actually. I don't remember there being puppets. Puppets? Did I get that right? I don't think there were puppets. Tover, did you even? Oh, the puppet, the puppeteers. Movie? No, the the Franz Liebkin seg- segment. Oh wait, no, I know what he's talking about. The pup, sorry, not the puppets themselves, but the puppeteers. Okay, okay. Were like actually super established, um, like puppeteers. Like they had a lot of Muppets and, uh, like, uh. Sesame Street veterans on there. Okay, that makes sense. Because I, I was like racking my brain trying to think of what scene had puppets and how did I miss it? You know, for a second there, I, I, I was dying myself. I was like, I watched the right movie, didn't I? I'm like, I've watched the movie a few times. <laughs> but yes, Will Ferrell plays a Nazi. And uh, he writes... A play called Springtime for Hitler. Uh, all about Adolf and Ava. Mm-hmm. They then hire Roger Debris. Yes, played by Gary Beach. Won Tony for the musical. Um, but re- he's really only a Broadway actor. Ah. He doesn't really. He, that was like one of his only movies. He did good, though. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think so. So the big thing that makes the movie work is Roger Debris, he decides the movie is far too depressing. The Germans are losing the war? What kind of talk is this? So he rewrites it so the Germans win the war. And he makes it a musical, which it definitely wasn't originally. And in the process of it, he ends up creating a satirical Hitler. Was never his intention. Was never anyone's intention. So, when it comes time for the play to happen, people love it, because it's making fun of Hitler. Who who doesn't love making fun of Hitler? So, their love letter just bombs. Bombs at bombing? Yeah, it bombs at bond because it's wildly successful. Yeah. And now they owe everyone money. That they don't have. 
And then they end up in Sing Sing. Then they end up in Sing Sing. To do some sing singing. Yeah. And then in Sing Sing, they make a musical with the prisoners and get off early and actually make a good movie. Or play. Sorry. Ta-da! The producers! <laughs> but if you're going to watch it, Finn. I really do recommend 2005. Oh, yeah. And uh, definitely watch it because it's hilarious and catchy. It's great. The there's a, there's a song in, in there called Unhappy, and I think it's my new theme song. Unhappy, unhappy, very, 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 very unhappy. It fits me to the T. It really does. I love it. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, well, I guess one <laughs> last note before we kind of wrap things up. Uh, like I said uh, earlier, uh, this was not a very good year for Broadway. Uh, it's been shut down. People are out of work. And more importantly, they're so bored that they're making Ratatouille the musical on TikTok. It's beautiful. I mean, it's, it just also hasn't really been a good year for kind of traditional forms of entertainment. That's true. Yeah. Movie theaters, but gone. If, uh, if you got a few extra bucks in your pocket that you know you just don't know what to do with uh there's tons of uh, charities that you can uh, donate to to help broadway there's broadway cares the actors fund artist relief initiative um all sorts of them you know maybe we can link one or two or something yeah we can put it in the show notes yeah yeah and consider when things open back up and life gets normal going to see a Broadway play. Maybe not in Broadway, but they tour. Yeah. Ah, And in the meantime, watch the producers, because it's close enough. It's great. (laughs) I love it. I don't know close enough is right, but I love it. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. I mean, they have have the the recording of, of Hamilton on Netflix. Which we will eventually do an episode on. Oof, that that sounds like a like that a sounds challenge. Like a, that sounds like a two hour special. Yeah, we 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 might do a two part. Yeah, we we might have to do a two part. Hey, and they already broke us into halves for us. Look at them. Ooh, wow! It's like oh, yeah. they did it knowing we would talk about it. Yeah, that was exactly what went through Lin Manuel Miranda's mind. Was hey, these three guys from a college that I might not have heard of, they're gonna talk about it. It's gonna be better if I split it into two. What a guy. Truly amazing. He thought of us. He did. Speaking of Lin-Manuel Miranda, In the Heights coming to HBO Max in the in the summer. Oh. That's good. I'm looking Neat. forward to that. The movie adaptation, not a recording of the musical. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess to wind off, uh... Just so y'all get to know a little more about us, if y'all care. If not, y'all can hop off now. I, that sounded really rude. I mean, like, uh, I'm going to cut that Yeah, get out of here. Um, we don't want you. <laughs> uh, I just meant we're done with our history part. But uh, if you want to know more about us, Nick, uh, two of your favorite plays. Uh, uh, Newsies and uh, Hamilton, because I'm basic. Topher? Uh, Othello. Oh, mostly Man, because, culture. like, it's my dream to play Iago. You'd be a good Iago, and in a play, yeah, I think so. I don't know if that's a compliment or not, even like to myself. But you know, <laughs> for a second, I thought you were gonna say Othello, and I was like, oof, that might be a little tricky. Ah, uh, yeah, no, 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 no. Can I play Iago, but like the Aladdin one? I think that'd work better. <laughs> Follow your dreams, oh, copy. Oh, what's his name? Oh, the guy with the voice. What's his name? Ah. He sounds something like this. Yeah. Ah, I, can't, I can't think of his name. Anyways. Gilbert Gottfried. There we go. Gilbert Gottfried. Uh, yeah. And, um... <laughs> I'm not going to say the one that I did freshman year. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Okay, that's fair. That's fair. Um, 
Probably the Lion King musical. Okay. Probably because that's like one of the, the that's one of the few musicals like I got to see in person. And I sat on an edge seat. Uh, it was when they were touring and they came to Austin when I was younger. And I sat on an edge seat and it was like in the middle aisle where they were coming down at the beginning. So the guy who played Simba uh like took my hand and like like I I got to process with them for a bit before an usher came and brought me back. That was, was really nice. Cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah. What about you, Coffee? What about me? So, like Nick, I'm basic, and Hamilton is definitely one of them. It, it speaks to both the music musical lover in me and the history lover. Uh, the other one is probably the Addams Family musical. Ooh, I haven't seen it. It's good. It's good. Well, I only saw the version my high school did, but that was good. And I've seen like clips from the one they did on Broadway, and that was awesome. And I just love the Adams family because I mean, who doesn't love the Adams family? That's fair. Through that, yeah, it, it's great. It's about like Wednesday bringing back uh, home a boy to marry when she grows up. Oh, whoa, whoa! Yeah, I wasn't ready for them to grow up. Yeah, it's weird. Never mind. Well, I'm not watching it after up. all. It's good, Christi- Nick. Christina Ricci is an adult now, Nick. What? All right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's weird, you know, the people grow either. up. Nick, you're an adult now. Yeah. What? <laughs> well, I mean, I think we could we could argue about that one. I mean, legally speaking, you are. What? Yeah. You're Biologically speaking, you are. I might need to lie down after this, guys. Oh, I think you do. Think like you sound like you might be losing it a bit. Metaphysically, oh, yeah. you are. I don't even know what that word means And that's our time (laughs) Thank y'all for joining us on Filmcasters Next film we'll be looking up Nick. If this gets a thousand Views Then we'll put on Tiger King the musical on TikTok uh, Yep It's a thing I do not consent Too late Nick already said it Yep he already committed to me and him singing Corrido if our first episode gets a thousand views. Oh my nope. god. <laughs> right now right now we're at fifteen, so you know. We're on the way. We're on the way. We're on the way. So uh if you really want to see us do some really bad singing, watch our episodes and get your friends to watch them too. And if you just like what we talk about, uh get your friends to watch your watch our episodes. <laughs> Alright, thank y'all. We will see y'all next time. Peace out, everybody.